Please remain standing in honor of God's Word. This morning we're going to look at Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. This morning we are finishing up our seven-part series on Esteem the Church. Next week we'll celebrate Palm Sunday. And the following week we will celebrate Passover, Good Friday, and Easter. Now, I know that that's a busy week, but let me just remind you that that is at the heart of Christianity, and we are not usually that busy. Um, but let me encourage you, if at all possible, um, come out as much as, as, much as you can, um, because this really is important. Um, again, the death, resurrection of Christ as our Passover lamb is at the very center of Christianity. So, a passage that's very familiar to all of you. The Great Commission will begin in verse 16. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for this great commission, this final commission that Jesus gave to his disciples. And Father, I want to pray that You will be gracious to us this morning. I want to pray that You will give us faith to understand the awesome truths that are contained in this commission. Father, my fear is that they are so awesome, we will not be able to believe them. Father, help us to believe them. Help us not to just skim over great truths in Your Word. Help us to believe them. May they penetrate to the depths of our being so that we live according to these great truths. And I ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. You may be seated. Well, my goal this morning is to help you understand the greatness of the Great Commission. Uh, the Great Commission basically is nothing more than an extension or outworking of Jesus' own mission. In Luke 19.10, we read that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's why Jesus came, to seek and to save the lost. And the massive underlying doctrine of the Great Commission that we must not overlook is the lostness of mankind. And I fear, I really do, that in the church today, we have lost the lostness of mankind. But we need to know that people are lost, that they're separated from God, and that they are hell-bound. I know that's not positive. I know that's not politically correct. But that is the fact of the matter. People are dead in their trespasses and sins, and they are alienated from God until someone gives them the message of the gospel and they believe that message and they are reconciled to God. And that's why Jesus commands us to go into all the nations. 
People are not innocent. They are guilty. On one occasion, R.C. Sproul mentions that he was asked the question, are you really saying that innocent people who don't put their faith in Jesus Christ are going to hell? And he said, oh, no, no, they, they will go to heaven. And the person said, well, wait a second. You, you just said without faith in, in Jesus Christ, they're going to hell. And he said, no, no, you, you said innocent people. If innocent people don't put their faith in Christ, will they go to hell? But there is no such thing as an innocent person. To prove our point, all we have to do is start to go through the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make any graven images. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet anything that thy neighbor possesses. Would anybody dare to raise their hand and say, I'm okay. I've kept all those. We are guilty and we justly deserve condemnation. Which means we have to go forth with the gospel and what we're called to do here in the Great Commission is make disciples. That's the heart of the Great Commission. Very simple. simple. So even the kids can understand it. Make disciples. And notice very carefully, not converts. Jesus didn't say make converts. He didn't say make church members. He said make disciples. Men and women who will follow Jesus Christ wherever He calls them to go. Men and women who will bow before the Lordship of Christ and worship Him. Men and women who will love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what we're after. Disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, as we consider this Great Commission, let's look at who this commission was originally given to. Verse 16. Now, the eleven disciples, Judas had hung himself by this time, went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. Isn't that interesting? I read some of the commentaries on this and they said, this is, this is quite strange. The eleven disciples worshipped Him, but then we're told some doubted. What, what does that refer to? And some have speculated, perhaps you had the eleven disciples going up on this mountain in Galilee and they worshipped Jesus, but then perhaps some others were following them up on the mountain and when they saw Jesus, they didn't worship, but they, they doubted. Because the assumption is it can't be that the reference here to the doubters also refers to the eleven disciples. And I say, well, I read the text very carefully. It's talking about the leaven. When they saw him, the eleven, they worshipped. They, the eleven, but some, some of the eleven doubted. I, I think it's very simple, very straightforward. They saw Jesus. They worshipped. But at the same time, some of them have, had doubts in their minds. And really, what's, what's very hard about this? If I were to ask some of you to be honest this morning, wouldn't you say, yes, I worship God? I genuinely meant it. And at the same time, the truth is I have doubts in my Christian life. I, I don't think it's that hard. 
And I, and I point that out because one of the things that we need to realize is these 12 disciples are extremely ordinary. Incredibly simple people. Some, sometimes we think, ooh, the apostles. And we, and, and we like put them in a separate category, way, way, up, way up high on a pedestal. And, and we think they couldn't possibly re- relate to us mere mortals. But they were mere mortals. They sinned. They stumbled. They doubted just like the rest of us. And it was to these men that Jesus Christ gave the great commission. Now, let me read this commission one more time. And I'm going to read it in a way that helps you to see the literal Greek just a little more. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you all the days to the end of the age. Fascinating that in this passage we have the fourfold all, 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 all. And if you think about it, Jesus didn't have to use this little word all. He could have said simply, authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That would have been clear enough. Authority in heaven and on earth. But he said all authority to emphasize the point. And he could have said, go therefore and make disciples of the nations. That would have been clear enough. But he didn't just say the nations. He said all nations, making it very clear that none are to be left out. And he could have simply said, teach them to observe what I have commanded you. But again, he was very clear. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Don't leave anything else. And then he could have just said, I am with you. But he literally said in the Greek, I am with you all the days. Again, emphasizing the fact that not only is He with us, but He is with us forever. He will never leave us, never forsake us. So this fourfold use of all underscores the comprehensive or universal nature of the Great Commission to make disciples. And in light of this universal nature, I'd like us to look at four points. Number one, let's consider the universal authority of Christ. The universal authority of Christ. The first thing he says is all authority. And just in case you miss it, he says, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I believe that this bold statement anticipates the ascension enthronement of Christ when he will be coronated as king. Now, let me ask you children. Do any of you children... 10, 11, or under, know what a coronation is. Coronation. That, that's a big word, a lot of syllables. What is a coronation? Anybody know? Anybody want to give it a shot? The crowning. Very good. Correct answer. I wish I had like a candy bar I could give you something. <laughs> Very good. Uh, simply put, A coronation is the official crowning of the king as he begins 
his reign. Now, in order to help people think through this and to understand this, I like to ask people this question. It's kind of one of these fun questions I like to ask to open up a conversation. What is Jesus doing right now at this very moment? I, I asked that question to a pastor of an evangelical church a while back, and he said, interceding for us at the right hand of, of God the Father. And I said, yep, absolutely. Very, very good. What, what else is he doing? And he got a little nervous. He thought for a while, and he's like, uh, uh, am, I, am I overlooking something? I must be overlooking something. And I said, is he reigning at the right hand? Of God the Father, and He said, "Oh yes, ap- absolutely." Now I'm, I'm not sharing that to mock another pastor and to say that he's missing it, but I am sharing it to let you know that even when you ask a pastor, the reign of Jesus Christ isn't clear; it isn't front and center. I think if I was to ask that question to any Christian, and especially a pastor, The answer should be, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, ruling and reigning over the nations. But we don't have that clearly in focus. We're kind of fuzzy when it comes to that. And if we're fuzzy in the pulpit, as I've been taught many times in class, if it's fuzzy up here, it's real foggy in the congregation. If it's not crystal clear up here, It's not going to be crystal clear when it reaches the ears of the congregation. And it is not clear, but it needs to be clear. It needs to be very clear because we're calling people to confess that He is Lord, which means we have to proclaim that He is the risen, reigning, and ruling Lord. So when did this happen? Acts 2. Let me make sure it's very clear in your minds. Acts 2, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, his first gospel sermon after he's been endowed with power from the Holy Spirit. He talks about the life of Christ, and he talks about the death of Christ, talks about the resurrection of Christ. And then he talks about the ascension of Christ. And in verse 34, we read, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, In other words, God the Father said to God the Son, sit at my right hand. How long shall I sit there, Father? Until I make your enemies your footstool. This is the ascension of Jesus Christ that took place 40 days after His resurrection. He ascended into heaven. He sat down at the right hand. The Father told, I want you to sit there until I make all your enemies your footstool. And then Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So at His ascension, His coronation, He becomes the ruling and reigning King. Now what was given to Jesus? Daniel tells us. If you'd like to turn there. Daniel seven thirteen and 14. 
And I want to be real clear here about the direction of Jesus because I've heard many interpret this as the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is not the second coming of Christ. Notice very carefully the direction in which Jesus is going. He is not coming from heaven down to earth. He is going from earth up to heaven. Verse 13, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, Jesus, He came to the Ancient of Days. Who's that? That's God the Father. Exactly. And He was presented before Him. This is the ascension. The Son of Man is lifted up. He's presented to the Ancient of Days. And 14 says, And to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. For what purpose? That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when did Jesus begin reigning over His kingdom? It does not begin at the second coming. It begins decisively at the ascension of Jesus Christ, where He is right now ruling over the nations. So that all the nations, all the peoples, all the languages will come and serve Him. And this will happen because of the universal authority of Jesus Christ. Maybe it helps to remember that going along with the enthronement of Christ is also the dethronement of Satan. Sometimes I, I listen to Christians and be on, to be honest with you, they, they act as though He's omnipotent, omnipresent, and ruling and reigning over the world, but He has been defeated. I'll just give you two verses. In Colossians 2.15, we're told that at the cross, Jesus disarmed the powers and principalities, talking about all the demonic realm. And 1 John 3.8 says that at His coming, His first coming, He destroyed the works of the devil. He was disarmed. His works were destroyed. So yes, He still prowls around like a roaring lion looking for people to devour. He's still an enemy. But He's a defeated enemy. And it's just a matter of time before His overthrow is certain. Now, as we move forward with the Gospel to fulfill the Great Commission, we need to remember the universal authority of Jesus Christ. The Great Commission is not go. The Great Commission is go therefore. In light of the authority of Jesus Christ, we go into the nations. Because of His authority, we now can go. So if we go into North Korea and someone should ask, what what authority do you have here? We say... We have the authority of Jesus Christ who has ultimate authority. That's why we're here. Yes, they might put us in jail. Yes, we could lose our lives. But we go in the authority of Jesus Christ. And let's remember that this Great Commission is at the heart of what we're all about. Every single week, we close our message with the Great Commission as a reminder that we're to go into the nations. And let's remember as parents that this is why we're raising our children. Do we want to shelter our children? Yes, we, we, want to, we want to shelter our children. I remember years ago, 
A woman pulled her kids out of the public school because she was really disturbed by what was happening. And I said, oh, you're, you're sheltering your kids, huh? And she said, no, 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 I'm, I'm not. I'm just, I'm, I'm. I said, no, it's okay. You're, it's okay to shelter your kids. We want to do that. But, but as we're sheltering our kids, as we're placing a hedge of protection around them, let's realize that at the same time, we are preparing them for the day when these arrows in our quiver will be put in the bow so that they can be launched. We want to send them out. We're preparing them for a mission. We're getting our young warriors ready. Yes, we don't want to send them out prematurely. Yes, absolutely. But we are getting them ready for a mission. We want to send them out. And who knows where they may go. Maybe we'll shoot that arrow and maybe some of them might go to North Korea, Saudi Arabia, And as parents, we might have fear and trembling as we get down on our knees and we pray for them. But they are to be sent out. We have a mission. And we have to raise our kids with that mission clearly in mind as well. So we're sending, we need to prepare them. What's the precise purpose? Number two, the purpose is that we send them out and we should keep in mind the universal conquest of the commission. The universal conquest conquest of the commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now, can you, can you imagine the, the first time the 11 disciples heard Jesus say that? Previously, he had sent them out to the lost sheep of Israel, but on this occasion, he says, I'm sending you guys out, you 11 guys out, and I want you to go with my authority, and I want you to disciple all the nations. Now, now pretend you never heard that before. What, what exactly was Jesus asking them to do? Disciple all the nations. Ken Gentry makes a good observation. He did, Jesus didn't say disciple all the kingdoms. He said that would have political Ramifications. The disciples would think that what they're to do is take over all the political structures. He didn't say that. Nor did he say, go and make disciples of all men. That would be very individualistic. Make as many converts as you can. And while that's part of it, that's not what he said here. He said, go and disciple the nations. Which means that cultures are to be transformed by the gospel. And is that not what we pray for this morning? I heard you very clear. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. That, that is stunning. you realize how stunning that is? You, you realize what you were praying for? Thy will be done on earth right here where we all live just like it is in heaven. And the disciples are told, go and make disciples of all nations. Go and make disciples of Mexico. Go and make disciples of Guatemala. Go and make disciples Asia, Africa, yes, North Korea, Saudi Arabia. Really? Is is that what Jesus is saying here? All nations. All nations. Get a map out. Listen. Go and make disciples of all nations. And if you want to know where to go, just get a map out and point somewhere on the map and say, right there. Make disciples 
of all nations, doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Clear implication of the Trinity in the name singular of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God, which means the nations are to be enfolded into the church. Basically, the very first step of obedience for a Christian is baptism. That's what you see in Acts 2. Repent, and then after you repent, showing your genuine faith in Jesus Christ, be baptized, and then join a church. That's how, how it's supposed to work. And you're supposed to do that right away. Be baptized, join the church, and then enjoy all the elements of the church, including the Lord's Supper. And that's what we're supposed to do to the nations. We're supposed to enfold them into the church. Now, some of you are saying that that's just... That's just too much. He can't really be, be saying that. Let me give you some other passages. Most of you are familiar with John 3.16. Great passage of Scripture, is it not? John 3.16, a great passage of Scripture, comes just before John 3.17. Another great passage of Scripture. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world cosmos might be saved through him. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world's already under condemnation. He sent his son into the world to save the world. John 12:47 If anyone hears my verse my words, Jesus says, and does not keep them. I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The cosmos. And I know what some of you are thinking. Did he really come to, to save the whole world? Let me give you yet another one. 2 Corinthians 5.19 Passages that many of you know, but we, I think we just we skip right over them because I think... They're just they're too profound in the profundity of these verses. We don't let us let them hit us. Second Corinthians five nineteen, I'll begin at verse eighteen. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, meaning not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. God is reconciling the world to Himself. And just one more. 1 John 2.2 Speaking of Jesus, He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Notice very carefully, 1 John 2.2 is not mentioning that Jesus is offering propitiation for the world. It is talking about something that Jesus has done. What He has done. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the world. Now, today, many people are turning to universalism. Which means some think that everybody's going to be saved in the end. No one's going to hell. And one of the reasons why that belief is out there because they misunderstand these passages. So they think everybody's going to be saved. But I think it can be 
misunderstood on this side, but I also think it can be misunderstood on this side because many Reformed people, evangelicals, read these verses and they say, yes, the world is going to be saved, meaning a tiny group of elect individuals. But that's not what the world is. The world is cosmos. That's not what it says. And I, I want to say, I think we can provide an answer that fits all the passages. Jesus Christ came to give His life for the world. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's reconciling the world to Himself. I think it's very clear. If we understand this as an ongoing process, this is where world history is headed. This is why Christ came, so that in time, as the mission goes forth, the nations will be discipled, the world will be saved. I think that's how we can reconcile, on the one hand, that He came to save the world. On the other hand, we see people perishing. And before the destruction of Jerusalem, Jesus even said, at this time, few will be saved. But the few was talking about in the first century. Where might we be 2,000 years from now if the Gospel continues to go forth? Some, some estimate, and I know we can't be real clear about this, but some estimate that at this time about a third of the world confesses some kind of faith in Jesus Christ. That's remarkable progress that has taken place in two millennia. Where might it be in two more millennia? And, and obviously, I don't, I don't know what God's plan is. I'm not giving a timetable. I have no idea what God's timetable is. But I'm just saying the promises in Scripture are incredible. And they're incredible all throughout Scripture. And they begin right right at the very beginning of the Bible with Abraham. Let me get, let me give you two more. Genesis eighteen eighteen. God is speaking, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. So there it is. He's going to become a mighty nation. All the nations in the earth are going to be blessed. In him. Now, if you turn ahead just a little bit, Genesis 22:18, we have this great promise after the sacrifice of Isaac. And he says in 22:18, this is the Lord speaking, and in your offspring, singular, meaning Jesus Christ, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. In Jesus Christ, God promised all the nations are going to be blessed. So Christ comes, He dies for the world, and now the Great Commission is go and make disciples of all nations. And then is it any wonder with those promises given to Abraham that in Romans 4.13, we're told that Abraham is heir of the world. Heir of the world. And we're promised as well, the meek shall inherit the earth. God says it's ours. I'm going to give it to you. Now, this, this is very important, these promises. These promises will help us to have an optimistic view in regard to the gospel and the kingdom. We, we need to get rid of our pessimism that the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Jesus came to save the world. We're to go to the nations. Is America going down? Yes, it looks like it is. I, I believe that. I, I really do. I, I think the America that our kids are inheriting is not as good as the America that we enjoy, which is not as good as the America that our parents enjoyed. I believe that. And it's going in that direction unless God brings about a revival. 
in the church, not in politics. It will have to take place at the level of the church. But America is not the kingdom of God. America is not the kingdom of God. The nations and other places in the world, the gospel is exploding. It is. It is it, exploding. So we need to have a world vision. As we look around the world, yes, there are places where it seems like there's only a handful of Christians, but there's other places where it's just exploding. In China, most of the Christians may be underground, but it's exploding. In Asia and Africa, it is exploding. Let's not confuse the kingdom of God with America. The agenda, the commission is, is much greater than that. It includes all the nations. And we need to have this faith because this is the faith that overcomes the world. 1 John 5, 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? We need this faith because it's faith that overcomes the world. And maybe one of the reasons why we're not going forth is because we have the faith of the ten spies. Oh, they're so big. You should see how big they are. They're, we're like grasshoppers in their sights. Have you seen the army of the North Koreans? Have you heard the, the Iranians are trying to put together nukes? Have you heard that? They're huge. They're powerful. And we should be saying, they are. But have you, my friend, ever heard of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, which has the power of God unto salvation? The nations will bow. You think they're powerful. You have no idea the weapons, the weapons that have been given to the church. And we need to believe this. We need to have this kind of faith so that we can go forward and fill the great commission that we have. Now, we're to make disciples of all nations. And that brings us to the third point, which is the universal teaching of the command. And it's very clear. Jesus said, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We're to give people the whole counsel of God. The parts in Scripture that they like because they're encouraging and inspiring and the parts in Scripture that they don't necessarily like. We're to teach them all things. We're to give them the whole counsel of God. And as I said before, again, it's not the job of the pastor to stand up on a Sunday morning and pick and choose what needs to be said. God has already told us what needs to be said. The job of a preacher or teacher is to say, this is what God has said and let's just go right through it. We're not going to skip over anything. That's what we're to do. And the end goal is also be very clear. It's not just to have abstract theories in our minds that we can debate. The end goal is obedience. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We need to obey. As James tells us in 1.22, do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. That's what we're after. Obedience. Now, how can we perpetuate this Great Commission from one generation to the next? Obviously, we need to pass it on to our children. We need to teach them. 
need to bring them to church. We need to teach them at home. But also there's a great passage in 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2 that instructs us as well. Paul says to Timothy, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And whatever you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will also be able to teach others. So Paul says, Timothy, take what you've heard from me. Find faithful men. Teach them so that they in turn can teach others. And we'll see that this will continue to grow and grow and grow. And hopefully it'll snowball and escalate until all the nations are discipled. That's what we're called to do. Go into all the nations. Anybody here this morning, beside the steels, want to sign up for missions? Anybody want to sign up for missions? Zachy, thank you. <laughs> Norbert wants to go. Maybe you're thinking, I, I can't do it. I'm, I'm too fearful. I'm, I'm too timid. I'm, I'm just like the disciples. I'm a worshiper, but I'm a doubter at the same time. I, I couldn't possibly do it. You don't understand, Pastor. I'm, I'm just an ordinary layman. I, I'm not one of those super Christians. Just an average, ordinary Christian. Well, can I remind you once again that this command, this great commission, was given to average, ordinary Christians. There was a time when the Apostle Peter was just fisherman Peter. There was a time when James and John were not Apostles of Jesus Christ, there was a time when they were just fishermen as well, going about their trade. So you say, well, what, what happened? Brings us to our final point. The universal presence of Christ. This commission ends with this. Jesus says, And behold, I am with you all the days to the very end. I am. Am with you. And if the authority of Christ anticipates the ascension, I believe this phrase right here, I am with you always, anticipates Pentecost. I think it's very important to note that Jesus gave the disciples these commands. But afterwards, and we find this at the beginning of Luke, afterwards, Jesus tells the disciples, now, okay, you have your marching orders, but, but, you need to wait for a while in Jerusalem before you go. You're not ready to go yet. Don't, don't jump the gun. You're not ready. To, you need to wait in Jerusalem before you go and fulfill the Great Commission. And somebody tell me, what were they to wait for? Pentecost. Power on high when the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon them. And then when that happened... Peter, who was saying to, to a little servant girl, no, no, I, I don't know Jesus. I don't know what you're talking about. Then, after that happened, Peter, who denied Christ, became bold Peter, who stood up and said, let me tell you what's going on, and preached his first Christian sermon because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is very important. What we need is the Holy Spirit. 
Now, this Easter, in a couple weeks, I wouldn't be surprised if in some messages, people will say one of the evidences of the resurrection is the changed life of the apostles. The changed life of the apostles. And the argument goes like this. It's very simple. You see, they saw the resurrected Christ. Nobody lays down their life for a lie. I agree. Nobody lays down their life for a lie. But that does not explain their boldness, I believe. doesn't explain their boldness. They saw the resurrection, but they did not have boldness until the Holy Spirit came. And a great example of this comes from Acts 4. And Acts 4, persecution is breaking out in the church. And the church gathers together for a Wednesday night prayer meeting at 7 o'clock at the church. No, I don't know what time where it was at. And they pray. And in 4.29 we read, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. What does that mean? We need your help, Lord, or we won't be bold. We need your help. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together, shaken. Wouldn't that be great if that happened Wednesday night, Brian? The place was shaken because God showed up. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, they continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. I think that's very important. I'm being very precise here because we, what we need is not just to know that God is with us because He is omnipresent. Not just to know that Jesus walks by our side, but to know that He is with us, indwelling us through the person of the Holy Spirit who indwells us with power from on high. And I'm emphasizing this because this is the power that we need. We will never go forth until this power comes upon us. And if this power were to come upon us, then with Isaiah, we might raise our hand and say, Here I am, Lord, send me. We might have a little more bold. We might want to go. We might have a little more courageous spirit within us. But we need the Holy Spirit. And let me just conclude with this challenge for you. Let's seek God earnestly through the Word and prayer. The Word and prayer. Every day. Every day. Come before God. Open His Word. Ask Him to speak to us. Ask Him to strengthen us. Ask Him to sanctify us. To give us grace to endure suffering. Ask Him to work mightily in our lives. God is faithful. He is. Could it be that we have not because we ask not? Be tragedy if, if God said, I, I want to pour out my Spirit upon you. I want to shake your church. Just waiting for you to ask. Just waiting for you to ask. Let's storm the gates of heaven. Let's grab hold of God. Let's be like Jacob. I'm not leaving. But you bless me. 
I'm staying right here. That your spirit comes upon me. Because I'm weak. I'm miserable. The truth is, God, I'm pathetic at times. I need you. I'm staying right here until you bless me. And let's grab a hold of God. Because we need Him. Because we're desperate. If nothing else, I pray that we can see how desperate we are. And that it would move each one of us to call out to God. Because we cannot live as He's calling us to live without His strength. Let us turn to Him persistently, tenaciously. He is faithful. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that You will stir our hearts. We have an awesome commission before us. But we have an awesome God who is equal to the task. Who is sufficient for these things, certainly not us. The Apostle Paul admitted that he wasn't sufficient. We admit that we aren't sufficient, but in You we find our sufficiency. Father, would You send Your Holy Spirit down upon us. Would you endow us with power? We need your help. We need your strength. There's no other place that we can go. So Lord, we beg you, help us for Jesus' sake. Amen.